tower cranes swivel and downtown Colorado Springs' blooming skyline, where a new hypermodern museum's facade beams in 300 days of sunshine, just blocks from a flashy new soccer stadium. Countering endless urban sprawl to the north and east, the city's activated core comes alive at an astounding pace. This is Olympic City, USA, consistently ranked as one of America's most desirable places to live. But not everyone's buying it. Keep Colorado Springs lame, reads the old bumper sticker. Not on your life, say developers, politicians, and business boosters. Old little London's becoming big sea springs, all grown up. Like it or not. What makes a city great? Some argue it's access to nature, a good education system, art, or architecture. The real answer? It's food, of course. What we eat defines us, gives a sense of place, sometimes purpose. I'm Matthew Schnipper, food and drink editor and critic for the Colorado Springs Independent. Over the last decade and a half, I've relished in the highs and chewed through the lows of our local cuisine. I often leave the table desiring more from our food scene, which, compared to Denver, its bigger neighbor, hits well below its weight class. In this five-part podcast series, we're inviting you inside our unusual hospitality landscape, asking where are we now? What got us here? Where do we want to go? And how do we get there? This is State of Plate. Thanks to State of Plate's underwriters, the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective, Downtown Colorado Springs, and the Fountain Creek Brewshed Alliance. My guests for this first episode, to help me set the table, so to speak, are Shane Lyons and Jared Boyer. I'm going to have them introduce themselves in just a moment. But first, I want you to know that they represent a classic, cliche even, local boys done good story. They both grew up in the Springs, and they cut their industry teeth here. And they've both gone off to work essentially at the highest levels of food and drink service. I've invited them to share wisdom, insights into what it takes to succeed at the top. I almost want to treat them like aliens who've landed on Earth with a message for us. As they gaze with fresh perspectives across their hometown's culinary scene, what do they see? Jared joins us today in the studio, and Shane's patching in remote from Europe, so excuse any audio blips. Shane, let's get started with you. I'm currently in Amsterdam, and I'm a recovering chef and food consultant and work around um, North America with companies big and small to help analyze sort of internal and external external quandaries and needs once and um, help them build the sustainability and ultimately profitability with the understanding that the entire industry is more or less built on a house of cards. Okay, Jared, you go. Who are you? <laughs> uh, my name is Jared Boyer. I'm uh, from Colorado Springs, like Matthew said originally, and uh, live in Chicago now. I'm a sommelier in Chicago, working at Alinea um, and with the Alinea Group. And uh, yeah, really excited to be back here and, and chat about all of the things that are happening in Colorado Springs, <laughs> house of cards set aside or not. I'm uh, I'm really in love with uh, the industry and food and beverage. So, but. I'm also the the young buck here that's really excited about everything. So that beard doesn't say young buck. How old are you? <laughs> I'm 28. Shane, yeah, how, how old are you, Shane? I'm 34. 34. Am I am I out of the young buck phase now and into like meandering middle age soon? Do I hit when do I hit that? <laughs> I think 34 is the the perfect like medium rare. Like you have just enough wisdom to like bring in some some great um, old man perspective, but you can still probably carry your own cases of wine and stuff like that. You know, that's on you. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> for sure. Now I want you guys to also go back just a little further. 
tell us where you worked in the springs. Um, and Shane, you have your, your family even has a history with, with food in the springs. Yeah. Uh, I was born in the springs. My family had a, um, depending on how you define successful within the restaurant industry, uh, at least bare minimum notable restaurant in the springs called the painted lady in the eighties. And so I really, was born into the restaurant world. My mom went on to be the executive chef of the Sheridan at the time when there was one in the Springs. And then eventually she was one of the first, if not the first uh, female sous chef that the Broadmoor hired for one of its restaurants in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. So um, <clears throat> grew up cooking, big passion for food, restaurant kitchens, every element of it. Um, I, I, I was raised by the stove. And so eventually I went off to LA and was an actor, had a moderately successful career. And then I decided I wanted to stop making money. So uh, I went back to Colorado Springs and uh, started dishwashing uh, for Brent Beavers, formerly Absentia, also pretty well known for its time. And Brent was my parents' dishwasher back in the day. So I became his dishwasher at 16. Um, and then I went off to New York and LA again, bopped around at some, some good places and uh, eventually found myself running a, a restaurant called Nosh for, I think, two and a half years. And yeah, I worked at Blue Star along the way, several other places here or there, and then went, went off to New York and opened up a restaurant. Shane, you and I met at Cincha back in the day, right? We'd known each other two decades? Yep, you did. When you were yelling at me to get your first, first courses out for Table 34. That's how. <laughs> That's right. Exactly right, and yeah. So transparency note: Shane and I have been friends ever since then. Jared, I've only known for forty-five minutes. He's already asked me to borrow money twice. It's actually a little bit uncomfortable, guys. So <laughs> it's hard times, right? I sat down with Jared once before this, and uh, we've known each other now for. I think we've been messaging about a couple months, but um, but Jared, tell us more about your springs background as sure. it relates also to the Blue Star Group. Sure. Yeah. So there's definitely a Blue Star Group through line there. But even before the Blue Star Group, I'll, I'll say my first restaurant job was actually in Joplin, Missouri at this kind of chain Italian restaurant called Johnny Carino's. And I did the kind of classic thing that I think a lot of people do entering into the industry where they lied on their resume about experience. Because, of course, if you're going to start off as a server, restaurants only want to hire people with serving experience. And I didn't have it at the time when I was in college. And so I was like, I'm personable enough. I'll, I'll be able to, to engage. I can figure it out. Two years experience, sure. And so lied on my resume, got the job, ended up doing pretty well there. But it was, you know, kind of that classic college job. Nothing too crazy, nothing too special. I didn't love the industry at that point. And in my mind, at that point, food and beverage was still the thing that you did while you were in college or the thing you did while you were trying to figure out your real job or your grown-up career. You know, what, what am I going to do when I grow up, right? And so then... I end up coming back from Missouri to Colorado Springs, start working at the Johnny Carinos here, then kind of got an interest in coffee along the way, worked at Starbucks for a little bit, and then transitioned to Kangaroo Coffee, this drive through coffee stand on 8th Street. And I was just like hanging out, having a great time with my friends every single day. It was just like a party. We're just, you know, it was just like really good vibes the whole time, right? Like we were young kids that were just glad to be with each other. And if we made like 200 bucks over the course of a few days, we were like, oh my God, this is incredible. You know, rent was like a, a loaf of bread. And like it was it was the, the easiest and best of times, right? And uh, my curiosity kept on kind of growing and I kept on wanting to develop and, and get more perspective on things specifically in coffee. So I applied for a job at the principal's office, which at that time was very coffee-centric, along with also having a great cocktail program, right? And so then that was my parlay into the Blue Star Group. 
started working at the PO under Eric Harry and Tyler Hill and David Welker and Erica Moulet and like all of those like kind of that opening crew and learned there, grew there. And then that was kind of the place where my perspective on this industry shifted from this is a temporary position to holy shit, this is incredible. I, I love this. Like we get to have conversations about culture. We get to constantly study. There's more to know than I'll ever know. And I, I fell in love with it at the principal's office. And then transitioned from coffee into cocktails at that point um, while there, mainly just for you know financial reasons. And it's when Matthew and I chatted the first time, one of the big conversations that we ended up having was the, the reality of logistics, the looming over this industry, how it's easy and tempting to get sucked up into the drama and romance of food and beverage. And then all of a sudden you have to deal with the heavy burden of cost and the heavy burden of, of bills and everything else like that. And something I'm sure you're familiar with, Shane, going around the country and consulting with different restaurants, trying to make them financially viable. That's pretty much why I left back of the house for front of the house. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Early in the day yeah. myself. And my, I was in the industry 10 years and that's where the money is. You, yeah. You follow the money. Yeah. I mean, if I, could, if I could just make coffee for people for the rest of my life and make – sommelier money or bartending money, I, I would very seriously consider it for sure. Because I, I love coffee, genuinely do. But anyway, transitioned into cocktails, started, you know, distilling in my garage like a lot of people do and just fell in love with, with that element of it. Wanted to learn more, got my level one sommelier only really to taste cocktails better. I had no interest in wine whatsoever. All I wanted to do was learn how to taste whiskey better, taste cocktails better. And the Court of Master Sommeliers seemed to be the most intentional group when it came to tasting that I'd ever seen, right? And so I was like, I don't really give a shit about your Pinot Noir. I just want to figure out what you think of when something's, you know, on your palate. I was going to say what you think of when something's in your mouth, but I didn't want to give Shane that that low yeah, ball. Yeah, so. Shane, don't, don't, don't. I'm take... a professional, Jared. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so. 22, nothing's fun anymore, Jared, okay? Yeah, you're right. I'm sorry. We're all very politically correct hey, here. Get to your 30s already, Jared. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then, uh. So then, yeah, I got my level one, um, luckily through sponsorship from Southern Glaciers Wine and Spirits, and then transitioned actually from the principal's office to the Broadmoor. Can you, we're Broadmoor, we haven't heard of that. Shane, do you know the Broadmoor in Colorado <laughs> Springs? Are you familiar with the... Uh... Yeah, I'm familiar with the castle on the hill that you're not welcome to. Oh, the Broadmoor, mm -hmm. that one. Okay, that, sorry. That, duck duck pond, got that it. That duck pond, that thing behind the wall that no one's ever allowed to cross. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, and, uh, and it was fun. I, I feel like the Broadmoor exposed me to everything outside of the bubble of Colorado Springs, right? Like all of a sudden that's when I learned about restaurants like Alinea and the French Laundry and Noma and all of these other places, right? Like I'd never really known about them before and my perspective burst and the Broadmoor just kind of introduced me to them. Of course, the Broadmoor, hyper-traditional. There are a lot of things that I struggled with there for sure. However, I'm, you know, always going to be grateful for it. So I was the small A there. At the Penrose Room and then also at Summit, got my level two. Then uh, just by kind of meeting a, a gentleman who was going through Colorado, started working with the Broadmoor for a little bit as well, who was part of the Alinea group for many years. He connected me with, with um, Alinea, went out for a stage, things went well, moved to Chicago and have been working with the group ever since. Which is very impressive, man. I mean, among the restaurateurs and restaurant groups and chefs of the world, I mean, obviously you're, you're training with and among the absolute finest. And, you know, that's no easy feat, front of house, back of house. Um, so congratulations to you for going through that gauntlet. It's, it's next to impossible to stay in the ultra high end world of fine dining and find work-life balance and still have appreciation for the craft and your peers and not become jaded. And um, sure. I think there are two types of people, if you're just going to 
kind of briefly summarize, there are people who couldn't think of being in any other place in the restaurant industry, and there are folks who can't wait to be any other place. Yeah. For any of our listeners who don't know Alinea and don't know the, the the level we're talking about that you guys are on right now. Well, I mean, just the, the background of Alinea, it's uh, owned and operated by um, Nick Kokonis and Grant Ackett's. Chef Grant Ackett's is the kind of leader, the spearhead of the entire operation, right? And, and there's a few other restaurants that are part of the group at this point, but Alinea is, is certainly the, the mothership of it all and has been open for 17 years. Chef himself has an incredible story, you know, from him going through as, as a young culinarian and a young chef working for people like Thomas Keller and Charlie Trotter and really kind of... Um, being cut in that kind of classic era of of chefs and really being forged in that fire and then opening up his own place in Chicago initially trio and then transitioned into into Alinea but he got sick for a period of time and I, I don't want to I don't want to speak for him or, or necessarily tell his story but I will say the things that that are googleable right um say that he he got sick for a period of time that really took away his his ability to taste and obviously you as a chef really much depend on that that's your livelihood that's your heartbeat that's your soul right and so um he didn't get discouraged by that he didn't you know accept that reality necessarily but Lenny really had an entirely different perspective and asked questions that nobody else had asked before you know chef would ask why do we have to use a plate why do we have to use silverware you know like these these questions that if you just click back a few levels and just challenge the system as it stands all the assumptions that we make when we walk into a restaurant let's just say fuck the assumptions and let's let's really wrestle with this entire thing top to bottom that's what chef did and came up with some of the most iconic dishes of all time so chef Hackett certainly has has an incredible legacy and i'm i'm just grateful to be able to learn from him and, and learn that place so it's not always about stars and all those things but we should note this is a three-star michelin restaurant right yes uh, anything else of note that would help again give people a perspective of this is a big deal. This is the highest level. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's a restaurant and it's something, you know, to me, it's, it's an assembly of people who are all obsessed with what they do, you know, and that's something that I, I tell guests quite frequently whenever people are like, you must love this job, which I do. And there are certainly parts of the job that I really struggle with, but I do really love it. And one of the things I always say is like, you know, you're part of a team full of people all obsessed with what they do. That to me is the thing that makes it special, right? Is that this isn't just a bunch of people walking in, clocking in, working, and then clocking out, right? This is an assembly of people who are all sold out for this idea of like, let's change what's possible. Let's change what anybody thought was in the realm of, of expectation. That to me is the thing that's special about Alinea. It's not the the ratings or the, the accolades or whatever. It's the fact that every single day, still after 17 years, Chef walks in and he's still obsessed with changing everybody's minds about something, obsessed with showing someone like, this is possible. I know that we didn't think it was, but this is possible and we're doing it every day. You know? Yeah. I mean, Shane, that's really inspiring for, well, it's morning time for us right now. <laughs> uh, a little bit too inspiring. Can you bring us down a little bit? Can you just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you t- tell us what you know about Alinea? What do you want to say about what, what, about what Jared just said? To, uh, it's very specific. And, and what he's talking about is time. And whether it's 17 years of the restaurant, being in business and learning and having its ups and downs and it's being embraced or being rejected. It has 17 years of time and chef Grant himself has about another 17 years of time on top of that. I'm guessing rounding of working with the stalwart chefs and restaurant tours of the industry. And so to become an expert at something, you have to have that level of time on top of everything else, your attention to detail, your passion, 
but it really it really extends to doing the work. And 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 the second thing that Jared spoke about that I found really interesting is Chef at Alinea always looks to upend, you know, our perception and how and the who's, what, why, where. Those are great questions. The people who can ask those questions and answer them and while upending them are the people that already know the rules. You cannot break the rules until you know the rules. I couldn't possibly agree with you more, Shane, that one of the things that we talked about at the principal's office, actually going way back, is before you ever serve a shot of espresso to a guest, we had this spreadsheet where you would need to pull 100 shots of espresso for the team and have them critiqued and then make cappuccinos for the team and have them critique. Like the idea being before you get creative and start thinking about making espresso tonics or these cool like Earl Grey ice cubes or like getting any level of creativity in your coffee program, we need to go over and you need to make good espresso time and time and time and time again. And it was the same thing with with our cocktail program. Before you ever got to the point where you were even allowed to submit creative cocktail recipes for the menu, you had to prove that you could make an old-fashioned perfectly time and time again. You could make an old-fashioned perfectly when there's two guests at the bar on a Tuesday afternoon and also a perfect old-fashioned when it's standing room only on a Friday night, right? Like you needed to prove that you had that, not, not just grasp, but mastering of the fundamentals, right? And that's, to me, something that's kind of understated in this modern era of immediate um like immediate gratification and people just wanting to to all of a sudden immediately be on top of of the of the pile or immediately be king of the hill the work that goes into decades of mastering something is what's totally necessary for you to be able to break the rules yeah my dad said something really profound to me once in my uh little bit younger years back when i was a young buck like you jerk um (laughs) you know i really sort of I have lots of ideas and I'm very passionate and I, you know, I want to always bring that to the table. And he said, son, I'm no longer interested in being right. And I think that is something that I sit with a lot um, Mm -hmm. beyond this conversation. I don't want to be right. I want to be aware and I want to be thoughtful. And I know that there are one of one trillion ways to prepare a chicken. There is no right way. And I think it's the, I think a, 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 being as aware of of how many different ways we can make the chicken is 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 where that sort of mastery or experience comes from. But the acknowledgement that you're never gonna know and you're never gonna be right, and there is no one right way to do it. That's amazing. It doesn't, yeah, yeah. Is your dad Dumbledore? Is just, he Dumbledore? Yeah. <laughs> he might be a wizard, but that's a separate conversation. And I'll ask you not. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We'll continue the conversation in a minute. But first, big thanks to the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective for sponsoring State of Play. They're transforming the 100-year-old city auditorium into a 21st century cultural hub, which includes a culinary hospitality career program that will incorporate advanced food preparation skills, fine dining menu building, and training in business and resource management. Everything students need to build a successful career in the culinary arts. Learn more about this unique program at communityculturalcollective.org. Jared, when you emailed me a couple months ago, you basically reached out to say that when you come home, you you find our scene underrated, and we're going to talk more about that. So, Jared, you're going to represent sort of the underrated uh, champion of the Springs. And and Shane, I'm not going to ask you to be uh, a villain here. You, You can't be a villain. You're too nice. But you do, you and I, when we've gone out eating together, we've both talked about 
uh, sometimes that lingering feeling of disappointment. We feel like it might be underperforming in, in various ways. And, uh, you know, there's sort of a promise not being delivered on sometimes. Jared's our optimist right now. Shane's a bit of our pessimist. How do we rate the Colorado Springs food scene right now? And I want to know what you're tasting and what you think we need to get the spring scene moving forward. So I'll throw that out first, and then we'll, we'll come back to some other uh, more specific questions into that. I just want to say that the disappointed uh, is your word, Matt. Uh, <laughs> uh, and let's, let's just frame this whole thing appropriately. I'm not talking when I, when I express any sort of misgivings or desire for more, it's not without recognizing a ton of intention and a ton of money and a ton of commitment and a ton of good ideas that exist in Colorado Springs and uh, in many other dining scenes. So I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, it, Colorado Springs has more than just a couple of two guys who went off and did nice things elsewhere. It has a whole city filled with artisans and craftspeople and passionate, passionate folks who, on the whole, do their best every day. I don't want anything that we say in this conversation to be misconstrued that I don't appreciate truly appreciate the energy and efforts of a city that clearly cares. And that's why I love Colorado Springs and will always consider it my home as much as I am a vagabond. But what you said, Shane, is poignant and beautiful. I'm glad you said that, um, giving credit to where credit is due here. And, and I don't think any of us here want to just completely shit on the Springs today. We don't. Mm-hmm. This is coming from a place of love and passion because we want it to be better and we're all striving to make it better. It goes into something Jared said too to me about the only way we're going to get better is being honest and holding people accountable uh, through critical review. So of course gives me job security and a sense of purpose. Thank you, Jared. But that's true though. We have to be a little bit harsh and a little bit critical and honest and real if we're going to get better. And to play off of what Shane was saying, I, I completely agree with you that the you can see, you can feel the intention of people here. You know, like there's there's a passion here in the industry for, for people, whether like across the whole spectrum of the industry, whether it's front of house, back of house owners, brand new employees, like there's, there's a general excitement that exists in Colorado Springs right now. And the biggest reason that I would say Colorado Springs is underrated is because to me, the hardest parts of, of this industry and the hardest parts of like getting great at this industry are the intangibles about getting people plugged in about getting people to give a shit, right? There's so many people in so many restaurants around the world They're filled with people who just treat it like a paycheck and who don't really care, right? You can teach people service mechanics. You can teach people wine background or courses background or, you know, you can give people knowledge and you can train people on on technique. But to give people – to get people in the door that are willing to plug in, that are willing to like exert that effort and pour in that passion and that intention, that's the hard part. So to me, I've definitely been – disappointed in restaurants in Colorado Springs. I've like not generally speaking, I'm saying like there have been moments where I've left a restaurant disappointed. And there's definitely moments where I look and I'm like, gosh, this this could be better. This is this is this is close. It could be better. But to me I look at it and my perspective is that we are we're we're close. We've got the hard stuff figured out. Like the hard shit's kind of kind of there, right? We just need a couple people to come in and be like, hey, this this technique is really what you need. Hey, that we need people to come in and teach people how to do these basics better a hundred times over so that they can then not jump to extreme creativity, but really execute fundamentals in a, in a really good way. If you look at the, 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 the best chefs, and I'll say their names, it's been the best chefs for 20 years. It's Brent Beavers, it's Jay Gust, you know. 
It's Mark at the Margarita. It's the same group of people. Are you talking about Eric, Eric at the Margarita, Biden Creek? Yeah, go back, Dave. <laughs> Mark, <laughs> Mark uh, great job, Mark. We don't know who you are, but wherever you're working, Mark, fantastic work. There's uh, a wonderful Mark. Right? Shane's a big fan of your work, Mark. Uh, I'm just going to step in and correct. It's uh, Eric, Eric at the Margarita at Pine Creek. Uh, I know Eric. Yeah, you're gonna, I know he's going to edit that out. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to be fine. Now, let's talk about the Roswell. Um, uh, we're getting to, uh, we will talk about the Roswell. It's coming. In fact, that's why you have to keep listening, people. It's coming. It's we're going coming. to address the Roswell. Anyway, Shane, continue your list of influential chefs in Colorado Springs, please. Well, and I think there's some new guard, too. I mean, I think uh, Blondine uh, over at the French Kitchen and her sous chef Hogan, who also trained under Brent. James Davis, formerly a Blue Star, now at the best hip techno Japanese pub and yeah. uh, all of Colorado Springs. Yeah, Chiba Bar could hold its own in any city, in my opinion. I love what they're doing over there. They're just so, it's so exciting. It's so new. And it's also rooted in a guy, James Davis, in terms of the food program that knows flavors and knows technique and can put out a bowl of some raw fish that you're happy to pay 9, 10, 12, 15, upwards of 24, because you know it's going to be a great meal. And, and, and really, I think what Colorado Springs is is – missing is that lineage of great chefs who who do know the classics who have um years behind their belts before they're opening up restaurants and you're right you could bring some people in you know some bigger restaurateurs some bigger name chefs from other markets but i don't i actually think the market has responded to what it wants i think it's very clear Colorado springs has, has made very clear outside the pockets of artisans and craftspeople what they want to eat. And I think you saw that with fist fights for the 14 hour wait of an In-N-Out hamburger yeah. or the endless uh, chains of Slim Chickens and Dave's Chickens and Raising Cane's that are moving in at a clip or the three hour wait for Krispy Kremes off of Powers. You know, I think the market is saying exactly what it wants. And while there is a group of eager, passionate, opinionated, thoughtful artisans, craftspeople in the food world and in the drink world, um, the market's telling you, and that is why bigger name chefs haven't come because I'm sure the city, at it's, you know, the population that it is, and it's proximity to Denver, there is no doubt in my mind that developers and larger groups have eyed the market, and yet they're not there. And I think it's because the market tells you what it wants and what it values. And so, let, me, let me ask you this in, in kind of a, a rebuttal um, to kind of break what you were saying into two parts. There's the the what the market is saying and kind of just what the raw numbers are, are saying. Not talking about that, but talking about the lineage of chefs that exist in Colorado Springs. Because I think talking about chef lineage, almost this like tree where you can see, where you can point to this person learned from this person, this person's mentor is this person. And so you can almost see that, you know, that fingerprint of that restaurant and that previous chef's uh, perspective. I'm wondering in Colorado Springs, I don't think people know who the best chefs in Colorado Springs are, generally speaking. Like you, I could come as a brand new person to Chicago, not know a single thing, you know, and just have, you know, like water behind the ears still and be like, I want to work for the best restaurant in Chicago. I want to work for the best chefs in Chicago. And I would know, no, having no connection to the industry, I would already know it's Chef Hackett's, Noah Sandoval, John Shields, you know, it's people like this. These are the best chefs in Chicago. So I would just go to those restaurants. I don't know if people, generally speaking, in Colorado Springs know the best chefs. Obviously, we do because we're in the industry. And I'm wondering whose fault is that? Why don't people – like if I'm a new person 
even coming from Denver, that wants to engage and wants to be a hospitalitarian and wants to be in this industry, and I say, I want to work for the best chef in Colorado Springs, I would just be running around in circles. And then eventually, I think the gravitational pull of the castle on the hill, the Broadmoor, just kind of sucks a lot of good people that way because it's the easiest one to be like, well, that might be the best, even though it may or may not, right? Well, yeah, I mean, we're talking about the tree, right? So I, my parents were part of that tree. Um, I saw it grow in the form of Brent Beavers. I worked with Brent and was able to go off and learn with lots of other, other great people. He set me right in my, <clears throat> in my career from the from the beginning, and and so on. And so that, tr- but that tree has to continue to grow and it has to become one of many in a forest. And we had that. Um, and there was a group called the Chefs Nine, who I'm sure in the next episode you'll learn all about. And they were all actively together working with local farmers working with the media, working with nonprofits, working with each other to create a forest of strong trees that could have lineage and deep roots and send off the, uh, you know, the next generation of, of these potential hospitality leaders. What happened, in my opinion, is one, 2008 happened. Mm. And that, does, that did a lot of, of, of not so good for a lot of people. And, you know, these guys are, you know, if you think I'm old, Jared, you know, like, <laughs> these guys are still doing it. And they're, you know, they're 15, 20, 25 years my senior. And that's the most impressive thing is that the guys who I looked up at, uh, at 16 and said, oh, you're in your 30s and you're kicking ass and this is amazing. They're still, you know, behind their stoves working really hard um, to one, have a, I'm sure, a profitable business that sustains their lives. And also, where are they? There's not sous chefs or people below them to come in and take over those operations. Otherwise, I think they probably would. Yeah, which gets to some of the labor market we're dealing with now post-pandemic. So yet another like global or national disruption that changes the industry in a huge, profound way, which it's still – in the midst of figuring itself out. Um, and, you know, Shane, when, when, when pandemic started, you and I were hanging out, we were talking, I think there was that article written by the New Orleans chef, I'm forgetting his name right now, but about like, you know, let the system die, we should build this thing better anyway. Because um, there's so many things uh, that are wrong, not culturally, but su- there's no sustainability in the industry right now. There's, there's a lot missing. I would love to hear it, Shane, because you were talking about how there are no chefs or no younger talent that's supplanting those people as they get older. And I agree with you 100%. I'm wondering why that is, though. Do you think it's because, I mean, you see so many young chefs and young talent in Colorado Springs that are opening up their own things and trying to do it on their own, which you have to admire the ambition and the adventure and and that kind of like excitement, right? That initiative. But I, I have to wonder why, why does it seem that so many young, talented and smart individuals in Colorado Springs choose to try and do their own thing versus finding a chef, a mentor, a, an institution that they want to invest, you know, five or so year, five, 10 years in before ultimately opening up their own restaurant. Do you think that's a generational thing? Do you think that's a Colorado Springs thing? Do you think it's... I don't know. I mean, when given the opportunity in a crapshoot to open up my own place in New York City, and I was well below like where I should have been in my career to be like, sure, I'm going to go and partner with a big restaurant tour and have a corner spot. Yeah, all right, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's ego. It's a young man's ego. And, you know, if you can put your head down and be smart enough to learn from people around you, you, you can make it work. And, you know, thankfully, 
to varying degrees. We did that at my place for now. We, we just shut the door. We switched names about a year and a half ago, but we shut after almost 10 years of operation. Um, it's amazing. Yeah. Well, you know, it was a lot of really talented people working really, really hard, um, faking it as they made it. And yeah, but to your credit, I mean, from what I remember, weren't you the, you were the first Springs person I could remember who, you know, got a good review in the times. I mean, that's a big deal. That's a big deal for Colorado Springs history for food. So not to take that away. I mean, that's, that's a big deal. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't, you know, reviews like Jared was saying before, you know, I, I, I look at reviews much more um, from sort of a marketing business standpoint at this, you know, and that's really, if you want to talk about what, what is the value of a Michelin three-star review, well, ultimately it's, it's a financial one. The difference between being a three-star Michelin and two-star is quite notable when you look at the P&L in terms of the, what you can actually drive in terms of business through your doors. So you get a New York Times review that's nice. It drives business. You get a fluff piece on one of the morning shows that we had on I think CBS. You know that drove business for for four months. So reviews are really valuable in the sense that they're your best marketing tool, or they'll cripple you because you didn't pull it off. And you know there's pl- been plenty of takedown examples of Roswell. Um, oh, we going to, should we, do we want to go there now, or do we? No, not yet. Not okay. yet. We're going to make you wait, guys. But we're going there. I promise. Oh, I love the tease. Um, you know. Um, so. Colorado Springs, like every other restaurant town, suffers from the fact that restaurants historically are built on a financial model that are barely sustainable and far from the potential of being successful. And you're talking about margins at best of 10 to 15 percent. And if you look at any other industry with the amount of upfront capital required, with the thought that you're going to make 15 cents on the dollar, people would say, like, you have to be crazy. The only other industry that's comparable that I know of is film, where you're like guaranteed to be like, can I give you some money to burn or flush down the toilet? Please, here's a bunch of money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and so and 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 that doesn't stop restaurants from opening because obviously there are ways to do it successfully. But we should say that it is a house of cards built up historically on a rotten foundation. And the real way to solve many of the systemic quality issues come from the fact that these people who would love nothing more than to give you a nice cocktail, a great bottle of wine, a fantastic bite of food, they're battling with landlords who are sharks, with a water boiler that's about ready to blow up in any moment and yeah. tap out their cash reserve, to a vendor who decides to strong arm them and change their terms of, of payment. I mean, the, the, um, if you can cook, that's the absolute bare minimum required to be a chef. And that and good food is something you should cook if you're a chef, but that's not what being a chef is about. It's about knowing everything else that you have to know to keep the doors open, lights on, and asses in seats. And going back to the spring specifically, that rooted knowledge is not there. Yeah. And that's why you see the turnover happen, and that's why you see ideas of ideas be they ramen shops and the person's never spent a, you know a year in tokyo studying or food halls that are overly ambitious and want to change the world they're not rooted in core knowledge as much as they should be they're rooted in ideas and good intention first the thing that what you were saying kind of resonated with me or popped in my mind is like you were saying, you were open for 10 years and you were, you know, constantly discovering something. There was like this excitement level when you were open for those 10 years. And then 
I'm sure over the tenure of your restaurant um, and all the other restaurants you've worked for, eventually you reach a point where you almost like crack the code, right? Where you you develop a system that works and you figure out like, you know, this is this is good. And then you figure out how to make it sustainable, potentially scalable if you want to do more locations or expand or, you know, whatever that looks like for you. I think one of the exciting things that happens or that Colorado Springs has available right now is all of the newness. And not newness for guests with new restaurants. Newness for restaurant operators and owners to constantly discover and get new perspectives. You know, one thing that Chef talked about on a podcast a little while ago is this idea that, like, we have a really strong system at our restaurant. Like, we, we've, over 17 years, tuned this system to where we feel really confident when we go into dinner service. Every single night brings different variables. Every single night brings 100 different palettes in with 100 different perspectives and 100 different opinions, right? No night's the exact same, but we're confident when we walk into service that it's going to work, right? We're confident that, that we're going to execute and it's going to do well. But there's something so exciting about being a new restaurant in a new city where you're developing your systems where you can try shit and you're like, God, dude, I don't know if this is going to work. And you just have to push. And there's like this like kind of adventure between, you know, it's almost like Road to El Dorado. Where you're like, I don't I have a goal. I don't know if I'm going to make it. Like, let's 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 fucking swing. Let's see if we do this, you know. Like, and that's a really exciting thing that can be really motivating, terrifying for sure, but also really motivating that I think exists in Colorado Springs right now that I just want – people in this industry in the city to grab onto. You don't need to have all the answers. You need to have some for sure. But but the, the idea of not necessarily knowing at the beginning of service, whether or not that dish is going to land well, whether or not everything's perfectly fleshed out or thought out, like that's a cool adventure to figure out and really tackle. Scary and you'll fall on your face for sure. But that's, I mean, that's how some of the best dishes in the world are created, right? So that was one little tangent, right? The question that I have for you specifically about finances in, in restaurants, you were talking about how Colorado Springs, people don't have that that knowledge base. Do you think it's more important for people in Colorado Springs to have a knowledge base about their specific craft, like the ramen going to Japan and studying that technique? Or do you think one thing missing in Colorado Springs is a knowledge base on business? It's all the above. It's yeah. all the above. And you get that knowledge through experience or through formal education or through you know you know mentorship. I tried to, I tried in 2019, I think it was, I was looking briefly at one of the new food halls that was opening up. And um, one of the things that we did really well at my place in New York was a, a pretty signature fried chicken. I helped develop fried chicken for Momofuku years and years ago. And I spent months and months frying chicken, every different variation we could think of and testing and R&D. And I came up with one that really, you know, set that chicken apart and it did well when I had a version at, at Nosh in the Springs. It did really well in New York. Um, so I'm very confident in the product and I think it could work for a food hall product. And so while doing the basic, you know, due diligence of, is this something that I would like to pursue? I asked the landlord operator, what is the rent for the space? So I can maybe build a model off of it. And I wasn't even committed to fried chicken because mm. you can't commit to fried chicken until you know the rent. And that's the key, right? Like I, I can't tell you what my concept's going to be until I know how much it costs. Yeah. So in trying to understand how much it costs, I was told, well, you have to give me a concept first. And I said, no, well, that's, that's in reverse order. I couldn't begin to give you a true concept without knowing what my monthly nut is. Yeah. Um, then I can develop a concept that fits that if I still want to pursue. And the response I got was, well, it's proprietary. Now, whether or not that was true, whether they didn't know, whether they didn't just want me as a tenant, all the above is fine. But what it said to me was, 
this is not the level of professionalism that I would want to engage in, even if I did find the number to be appealing, mm. um, because the, the order of operations have been reversed. And so what a lot of restaurateurs and chefs and well-meaning, intentional people within the food and beverage industry do is they, they have an idea. They have a concept. That's great. It almost doesn't matter because at the end of the day, we're shit and piss factories. That's what we do. We make poop and we make pee. <laughs> it's pre pee. Well, there we have it, everyone. Let's we're done here today. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we do. That's what we are. That's what being a chef is, among many other things. That's what being a meteorologist, bartender is. You make pre piss and pre shit, and that's all it is. At, you know, so you so once you strip the romance, the intention, the history, all yeah, yeah, throw it away. That you're you're making a factory that you can sell as many units as possible at the highest price as possible, and so you have to start there. And I know I've you know made you lose your appetites, uh, hopefully, but um, <laughs> it's just it's stripping everything else away, the romance of it all, and going you know what are the core metrics of can I run a potentially successful, dare I say, profitable business at this location with this rent and or mortgages and mortgage, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I think it's a fundamental misalignment of intention, creativity with reality. Do you think a city like Carl Springs though, with all the new people and money, new, you know, new heads that are coming to this place, do you think that gives you a little bit more confidence about the financial potential of your restaurant? Or are you still like the ah, it's, it's just, it's just dreams. It's just, you know, writings in the clouds and it doesn't necessarily mean anything. For me personally, when yeah. I do a restaurant in the Springs, I really love the Springs. I love the local um, produce in the summer and fall. I love the meat industry that's going up, growing up around the region in Colorado. Um, I really do. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I would I would consider it. One, I don't want to operate restaurants on the chef level anymore. It's not, I've done that. It's not something that I'm passionate about anymore as much. I think there's a lot of opportunity to do something great in the Springs but I, I'd have to know what the rent is. And my guess is these spaces, much like everywhere else, are being overvalued. These commercial spaces are being overvalued and they're asking for rents that are probably too high. And when this inflation recession that is here but really kicks us in the balls, that's when you're going to see another wave of closing again because these businesses are not actually set in sound financials to operate sustainably at margin. Mm. And it has a lot to do with the rent and landlord. And I'm, I'm guessing there's not spaces available that I would be attracted to that makes me go, okay, I can actually drive meaningful margin to the bottom line. So I'm not just chasing my, my tail. Sure. Um, do you think that's a uniquely Colorado Springs thing or is that a national yeah. thing? No, I think it's an international thing. I yeah. think it's, you know, I mean, if we want to go down this line of thinking, it's, it's, it's you know, giant corporations owning everything and and we don't have to dive down this but if you look at the investors of commercial real estate they're the same ones in denver as they are in new york yeah yep. as they are in la as they are in lisbon yeah. i'll say it eat the rich let's go <laughs> <laughs> we'll continue the conversation in a minute but first i'd like to thank these underwriters for making this podcast possible downtown colorado springs home of the largest concentration of independent restaurants in Southern Colorado, is proud to sponsor State of Plate and support the passionate individuals who make the food and beverage industry a cultural highlight in our lives. And the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance. Good beer requires good water, 
and lots of it. That's why the Fountain Creek Brewshed Alliance brings together water resource experts and brewing industry professionals to spark conversations about protecting our watershed. Visit fountain-crk.org to find a liquid lecture at your favorite local brewery. There's another character in all this, which is the consumer, the diner, the eater. We've sort of almost referenced them when we talked about the demand for the in and outs and these insane lines around Chick-fil-A every day. Um, you know, that it's, it also plays a little bit off of your pre-poo concept, Shane. It's, it's part of the system. This is an ecosystem. This is a whole system. It's, it's a feedback loop of, of what we're telling chefs, what we're demanding. The things we buy, we vote with our dollars. If we keep buying chain food and Drek, that's what we're going to get. Uh, I do want to give credit, though. We have a lot of local jobs and a lot of money comes to the community. There's a lot of hardworking people in our chain restaurants. You started in a chain, Jared, so I'm not just going to take a dump on all chains. There is a place. I get it. I guess, Shane, I just wanted to ask, you know, elaborating on, on that briefly, the system. I mean, you, you, you said to me last week, it's, it's by design. It sounds like a conspiracy almost, but it's by design. I don't know. I mean, so this term conspiracy gets thrown around uh, on all sides, every which way. Um, the difference between a conspiracy theory and a, a, a conspiracy uh, fact is very minimal. And you know, if you want to, if you want to think that our food system is is a conspiracy to make you sick and broke and poor to help th- that process move along, well, anecdotally, I could look to the subsidized foods that are corn, wheat, soy, sugar. And I can then look and say, okay, those are some of the number one causes of heart disease, diabetes, and cancer, which are some of the number one killers in the United States. So it's either through economically motivated greed, which is probably the truth, or it is a bit more sickening and more conspiratorial. Because if you have a population that is really fat and is not eating nutrient-rich foods and is sick all the time with limited access to healthcare that they can afford without going bankrupt, well, you have a populace that is fairly paralyzed. So I think if you look at Colorado Springs and the sort of broad strokes of the food market that we're in, the foods that are being sold, and and despite the fact it's one of the healthiest cities in the U.S., but the food that is being sold is rich in salt, fat, sugar, which you know, corporate food manufacturers, they, they have a name for uh, for when you reach the highest saturation of salt, fat, and sugar. It's called the bliss point. And millions and millions and millions of dollars are spent every year to identify what is the bliss point of this product. Um, and how is the consumer going to have the most dopamine rush through their body when they eat it, which is how you create addiction. Um, and so just like everywhere else in the U.S., when you, you go for miles and miles and all you see is McDonald's or Burger King or IHOP or it doesn't really matter, they're selling the same food. You know, the iceberg lettuce you buy in Minnesota is coming from Salinas Valley, California or Yuma, Arizona or south in Chile or Mexico year round. So if I buy iceberg lettuce in Colorado Springs or in Minnesota, I'm bound to have the exact same iceberg lettuce. And bound to have the exact same cheese uh, for my pizza. And I'm bound to have the exact same, you know, low quality bacon if I choose to to buy sort of base price bacon. So Colorado Springs is is just one of the many places in the U.S. that I think the evaluation of how we want to eat and what we support in terms of food is far more meaningful of a conversation beyond 
what brands exist there and uh, why do we only have hamburgers? Yeah, I agree. And I think it's a much more complicated conversation than just um, like what what restaurants exist and what are, what restaurants are busy, what restaurants are slow, right? Because Colorado Springs itself, it, I mean, it's it's enormous. Geographically, a huge ass city. Geographically, it's bigger than Denver, right? Obviously not in terms of population, but it covers more land than Denver does. And essentially, for all intents and purposes, you can talk about it as three different cities, right? There's downtown Westside that has its own culture, has its own, like, has its own perspective. There's the Interquest kind of northern corridor, and then there's the Powers Corridor. And each one of them almost pursues their own restaurants and their own identities, right? Like, out on Powers, there's so much temporary housing. It's so military-driven. People live there for three years and then leave. That's why they love recognizable restaurants, because they, they aren't here to be in necessarily engaged with the local culture. They're here to do a job for three years and leave. And so they want to go and find the same iceberg lettuce that they can find at every other city that they've ever been at, right? And then up north is all of the new money, all the new businesses and, you know, tech companies and things like that coming in. And so there's, you know, resorts coming in there and it has its own kind of vibe, its own culture. And so a bunch of California people want an in and out. So they got in and out, you know, things like that. And then downtown Westside is where there's a lot of actual local perspective and, and local chefs and, and ma and pa places. The difficulty with that, and this to me is what makes Colorado Springs such a difficult place with food and beverage, is that in big metropolitan areas, you have the benefit of population density. So you're going to have guests come in every single day just by nature of proximity, right? That's not to say that you can be a bad restaurant and still succeed. Absolutely not. The standard's higher. The demand is higher. The pressure is higher. You need to be able to handle all of that. But you you won't necessarily find a day where you're just going to have zero people walk in the door, right? In Colorado Springs, you have one opportunity to engage with people. People will come out from Powers downtown a few times a year, and they'll try your restaurant once. And if it's really good that one time, then they'll continue to make the trip. But if it's off that one time they're not willing to drive 30, 35 minutes to try it again, right? Whereas if I have a little cafe at the bottom of an apartment building and I give one guy a bad espresso or bad experience one time and he lives in the building, he'll try it again just by convenience, just by proximity, right? So I have two, maybe three times to really hook that guest, right? Just because of population density. Here we don't have that density because the city can't build up, it builds out. And so you have one opportunity to get people, and what I found, I mean, I was at a, at a bar the other day here, and I was talking to people who had just moved here from Wisconsin, just kind of struck up a conversation with them. And they were like, this is one of our favorite places. I love it. Everything's perfect. And I was like paying attention to their experience. And I was like, none of what you're experiencing is actually really great. You know, you're not necessarily, you're not getting bad service, but you're not getting extraordinary service. Things were taking a little bit longer and everything. But the biggest thing they said is when they went downtown, that was the bar that when they went downtown the one time they had the most fun at. So now their level of grace moving forward, they're like, yeah, I, I don't mind waiting an extra five minutes because I love this bar, you know? So I, it's just, a, it's weird and different in Colorado Springs because of that. It's a great point. I've never heard it layered like that, but you're right. You're right. That, it is three, almost three identities in one. And then you add Denver into the mix because that's what's happening with the Denverization sort of back to the, yeah. you know, as I see our city, I mean, we have so many cranes downtown right now. We have all this development happening and we're slowly becoming Denver. A lot of people want to be Denver. A lot of us who've lived here a long time don't want to see it go that way. So when we look at Colorado Springs from maybe a traveler's perspective or, again, local, like who are we? What What is it? I mean, we've always stolen New Mexico. Oh, we're green chili. Well, that, that's that's <laughs> not ours. That's Pueblo in New Mexico. Of course, now we're all addicted too. We love it. But we can't just be another green chili city, right? Like 
Is there anything else that makes us our own unique product when our, our city branding is trying to be that, oh, you know, we're Olympic City. We're the city of champions. We're, you know, we have this and we have that. Like, we're so unique. Yeah, I thought we were the city that lives it up. Last I heard oh, that yeah. was, there was a slogan. Live yeah. it up was a very short lived campaign they ran. <laughs> yeah. How much did that cost? Oh, easily six, six figures. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. What's our identity? Prove me wrong. Do we have an identity? I mean, I, I, I would say, and I, I think that Shane's opinion is going to be more, more dialed than my opinion, just because Shane has more of a, a national perspective than I do. But I, I would say that I think Colorado Springs itself is an identity. Obviously there's military. So you have to take that into consideration huge amount of outdoor people. I mean, we're so, we're in the mountains. So people love to climb and ski and bike and, you know, do all of these things. So that can't be ignored, right? And then it is, you know, it's this weird combination of like a little bit granola with that kind of like right-wing military element as well. It's It's got a little bit of, of ev- not everything, but it's got a, a little bit of different contrasting identities, right? So that to me is why I think it's so tempting from a food perspective to try and be the the servant that serves all masters. That's why so many restaurants try to have chicken parmesan and a burger on the same menu. And it's like, well, I understand there's different people and I understand there's different cultures here. But I think the best places in Chicago or in Chicago and Colorado Springs find their identity and then serve that specifically. I mean, we've already gushed about Chiba, right? If you go into Chiba and order a ham and cheese sandwich, you're going to be really disappointed because they don't have one, right? But Chiba does one thing and they do it really well. I think that's the thing that Colorado Springs restaurants need to figure out is they can't try and serve the identity of the city as a whole. They need to serve the identity of their community more directly. You know, I'm going to propose a term. How about mountain melting pot? <laughs> Shane, Shane, your reaction. Mountain melting pot. Go. Mountain, well, uh, how many hundreds of thousands of taxpayers' dollars do we need to pay you for that marketing spend? I would prefer <laughs> 250 250. I don't know. That seems too low for us. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I should spend three months working on it, storyboarding it, and bring it right back to you, and then I want that same paycheck. I, I will say, and, I, and I'll pick on it a little bit, I, I'm always wary of marketing experts and branding experts. I, I was at Nosh, and we brought in a marketing guru, so he'd like to be thought of, and three months of intensive interviews and, and, and lots of time and, and food. We fed him a lot of food, and I'm sure he got paid handsomely. He came back with a new slogan that I've never seen like Jaws hit the ground more and faster. It's like, it was, all right, mix, mosh, nosh. <laughs> <laughs> the, the definite silence. <laughs> one, one guy in the back was like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I walked out. <laughs> yeah. I got to go cook some food now and like do do something. Hey, while you're on real. Nosh, you told me about this story about the bison tongue. That that gets back to, again, the consumer side of this. So tell me that little Nosh story. Tell our listeners that Nosh story. Jared wants Nosh. to know that story. Yeah, I don't know that story. Not well. There's a little bit before your time, young buck. Uh, <laughs> back in 2010. When, when, uh, when Shane was moshing and mixing and noshing. Yeah. <laughs> mixing moshing and noshing. Um, you know, so Nosh was interesting. I had been just working in New York at uh, Cafe Balloon and Momofuku. And, you know, um, despite what anyone could say, would want to say about um, Joe Coleman and his operations, I'll give him two credit. He's very persistent. And because of his persistence, he's created a, a, a fleet of uh, very interesting restaurants. And because of that, people like yourself, myself, have gotten lots of opportunity. And if you catch him in the right moment, he's incredibly generous. And because mm. of an opportunity uh, that he gave me to, to, to spend some extra time in New York, I was to come back and, and run, or I was told, maybe run Nosh, maybe not run Nosh, be a part of Nosh. 
but okay, so I come back and it turns out that there was a chef who was there. And I remember after my first night of walking on a floor that was covered with um, bags of, you know, empty French fries and gunk and shit everywhere and complete chaos and serving burnt food or undercooked food. I just walked into the chef's office and said, you know, I'm not going to work here like this. I didn't leave some of the best restaurants to come serve burnt junk. I might have had some burnt garlic chips in my hand that I asked him to eat and he refused because they're burnt and nasty. So uh, eventually uh, that chef left and it was an opportunity to sort of be what you were talking about before, be young, be brash, be egotistical, see if I can do it better. And I believed after the period of time of seeing how folks had done it in New York, to some degree, I, I, th I thought I could. And and I think I think we did, um, and we we made a menu that in our prime got great reviews from both the independent. It wasn't Matt reviewing, and um, the Gazette, and we got some other blurbs. But we put a, a section on the menu called Stuff and Things, and it had bison tongue, it had foie gras, it had fried fish heads, uh, all things that people eat in other parts of the country and the world. But the pushback that we got from the clientele um, was pretty fierce. Some of the loyals, I had one guy asked to speak to me and I come out and say hello. And he said, I'm not on Survivor. I shouldn't be fucking forced to eat this shit. <laughs> and I said, sir, we have a hamburger too, uh, which he didn't like that very much. He told me he's never coming back until, unless we change back to the old menu. And he's, and he's, you know, he knows Joe and he knows this and, you know, we're going to lose his business. And, we had a number of people who were very adamant that this sort of wild food that we were trying to put on that is eaten all over the world, you know, is is inappropriate for them to even, you know, see on a menu, let alone eat. Yeah. And that's that's where okay, perfect transition. That's where we blame the eater for not supporting this great thing. I mean, I tried those dishes. I remember these dishes. This was delicious food and had that stuck had that been received well and sent the message to not just that kitchen but other kitchens we might be further along all right so we made some jokes let me just I'll explain the roswell thing because it's, it's to this point so jay gust who's currently at homa um owns tapatria pizzeria rustica got you know he cut his teeth at the ritz way back before opening homa here jay opened this place called smorebroad over in the lincoln center when it first popped up Lincoln Center was pretty much following in the footsteps of Ivy Wild. We're going to take a school. We're going to convert it. We're going to make it cool. And, you know, to do that, you've got to attract these cool little businesses. So they got the hipster barber shop, the beard place. You guys, your beards could both be done there. Um, great. I mean, Nightingale Bakery is phenomenal bread. Um, Goat Patch, you know, awesome brewery, like one of the best hazies. All quality stuff there. So in comes Jay with Smorbrod. And this is like a Nordic concept in a time when – internationally that was trending big everyone was doing nordic food and jay was on it and he put together a, a competent menu and there were some delicious dishes and i really enjoyed it personally we gave it a good review this should have been right thing right place right time all of the stuff was there to work and then it didn't and it, it didn't even i don't even know last a year or so i don't know why that didn't work i was uh, i just was just trying to get my head around it and what replaced it is this place called the Roswell. And this is the review I'll never live down, by the way. I mean, this is still brought to me weekly. People are 
either love me or hate me or whatever, but um, I want to I couch it here. I want to explain it maybe better than I've ever explained it before. But Roswell comes in and it's just trying to be a neighborhood bar um, is, is what they tell me. And it's the Roswell neighborhood and just simple stuff. You know, they don't want to judge you if you don't want a fancy drink. You know, rum and coke is fine. All that's fine. They open. We give it a little bit of time. We go in for our review. And I just did not have a good experience at all. And I was kind of just pissed that our town didn't support this great – you know, avant-garde, like we're bringing Nordic food to the Springs guys. We don't support it. And we get meatballs again. And, and it wasn't even good at the time. And I haven't been back in a while, so I'm not going to say that's the current state today. So, you know, in my write-up, I basically was limiting all this and, and just said, I don't get it, you know? And I was, I don't know if people read into this, but I, I think I, a lot was blaming the eater. I wasn't necessarily just blaming the place. And I don't want to put the whole weight of the world on the Roswell. And I think that might be what's misunderstood and I can take credit for is and that might have read like, oh, the Roswell is everything that's wrong with the Springs. But look, it's it's one of, I don't know, dozens, hundreds, whatever, just doing its thing. And it's and again, it's, we're not going to hold it to the Broadmoor standard, but it's not the Roswell or any one place's burden or responsibility to carry that torch. I just, I was using it symbolically to say we had a chance to support something good and we didn't. And this is what we get. And now we've got in and out. Well, let's talk about In-N-Out for a second, though, because In-N-Out is actually tasty. And you sure. know what they cook? They cook food. <laughs> and that food is fresh. Yeah. And they make a bun. And then they have a patty. And then there's some lettuce and tomato and onion. And if you want some sautéed onions or pickles, whatever, you can have that, too. Like, they cut a potato. They stick it in oil. Should they do that at least twice to make it crispy? I would think so. But they don't. That's not <laughs> how they make the fries. People like the little soggy undercooked potato thing that they do. But you know what it is? It's a fucking potato, man. Sure. It's not mixed with potato starch and modified food starches and all sorts of fillers and additional sugars. And, you know, it is food. Um, so I will give in and out its due. If you're going to have a fast food hamburger, that one is a, a, a real hamburger worth probably eating once in a while. Totally. And and to play off of that, I think one of the things that Matt and I had um, during our first conversation was this idea of what makes a good restaurant and how, how do you define the best restaurants in the world? How do you find the best restaurants in the city and things like that? I think it's you figure out like whatever that restaurant – wants to be it just needs to be that authentically yeah. and excellently so in and out's not trying to be the most luxurious place in the world it's trying to be delicious fast and hot right and it does that well so i that's why i think you know if you're trying to be a mexican restaurant in colorado springs you shouldn't obsess over trying to make sure that the person who only eats burgers or the person who only eats these other avant like crazy weird things will find something at your restaurant, you should just really obsess over making the best salsa that you possibly can, right? Like figure out who you want to be, focus on that, and then pursue excellence in the scope and context of who you want to be, right? To go off of the the Roswell, I think that obviously there's so many reasons why it could potentially happen that, that Smart Broad didn't succeed, right? It could be a million different things. I wasn't here. I don't know. But my guess, at least my first thought as to why that didn't succeed and the Roswell came in... I'll take the full the full blunt as a, as a guest-facing employer. I think it was probably guest-facing service and not saying that it was bad service. That's not at all what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I think we underestimate or undervalue things like descriptions, things like the way that we talk about food, especially when you're serving food that people aren't comfortable with or aren't familiar with. You need to almost convince them to like it a little bit, even if it's extraordinary, even if it's delicious. You need to convince the guests to like it a little bit, but you don't do that by telling them you like this. You don't do that by telling them what to eat, how to eat, and how to feel about it. You do that by telling them a story. 
You do them by engaging them so that they think it's their idea that they like it, right? But you create this entire conversation about the food while you're serving the food. So then people who are enjoying it get engaged in that way. You know, that's something that, that we talk about a lot is this idea of dialogue, this idea of how a description and the way that we talk about food is seasoning on the dish just like any other ingredient, right? We will practice the way that we talk about things. We will sit before you're ever allowed to talk about food to a guest. You have to describe that dish to our general manager. We're totally sold out for this idea that when us as guest-facing professionals talk about this food, it's a part of the food. And I think maybe that's what happened with Smorbrod. Maybe the dish was just thrown in front of them and the guests are like, what is this? And I'm like, it's, it's, you know, fill in the blank. You know, it's an open face sandwich from, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then, and no one got to engage in that. No one heard a story about it. So no one knew how to like it. Man, you give a, a lot of credit and I appreciate that uh, thesis. And I think you're right at a restaurant like Alinea. And I think you're right in other marketplaces. I ate at Smorbrod. I brought my Welsh girlfriend at the time, who is one of the proprietors of uh, Halen Mon Sea Salt, which is in Europe, one of the you know most highly regarded sea salts you can buy. It's a family company. They they make it for everyone who's anyone in, in Europe. Awesome. And so she knows great food. We went there. And she loved it. She's like, thank God this exists in Colorado Springs. Because in between that, we'd been eating, you know, Domino's at a friend's house. Or she saw a Costco for her the first time. That really blew her mind. <laughs> um, you know, she was so grateful to have light, thoughtful, well-prepared, flavorful, healthful food. But you, those sandwiches, those open-faced sandwiches were $14 excess. If you, if you were going to get full, you were at, you know... For her and I, plus a couple of drinks, you're not walking out of there under, you know, 60 to 80 for really eating a meal. And I think that goes back to how the, the perception of value and what the consumer values. If the consumer can have a big, albeit dry, uh, moist, probably with tortured animals meatball smeared in some Prego sauce, but it's a giant one and they paid 12 for it and they can get full ish with one other thing and they're under 20 on food they're just doing math and i don't blame them i mean you know we're talking about our money is valuable to us whether you have no money some money or all the money money is valuable and if you go and spend it you want the value for what you spent and so i do think you have a consumer base who are really questioning the, you know, the, the, the value proposition of how much am I going to spend to how full am I going to get? Or how much do I get to eat, rather? Different question, because we're full long before we quit eating, especially when you have big, dry meatballs, like you said, at the Roswell, Matthew. So I like to pick on Matt. He's my favorite. I love reading your <laughs> reviews, Matt. I get so excited. Thanks, well, Matt, because he's like the nicest human being you can meet, generally like the <laughs> nicest, most giving human being you can I, meet. I paid him to say that. And then yeah. you get ticked off, and it's so fun to watch you get mad. Because <laughs> all you want is for things to be good, and then when they're not good, it makes you sad, and then you get a little mad. It's true. Um, <laughs> he's Heard it, he's heard what I don't write. He's heard what doesn't yeah. make it to print. And that's that's a rare viewpoint. <laughs> the saddest and the maddest. <laughs> that's yeah, maddest, well, because I, you're, all, <laughs> yes. you're, you're always putting yourself in that clientele's position of what am I paying? What am I getting? What and you do if you're getting a street taco, which you know, uh I went with my girlfriend uh in uh wine country, California. We we're driving around and we had reservations at this the, a nice place. We go there 
it's so expensive. The service is ridiculous. They clearly tell that we're not going to spend, you know, 600 or $700 for the night. They basically get us in and out as fast as they could. We leave disgruntled. We're still hungry. And we walk down two blocks in an alleyway behind a Mexican grocery. There's a guy cooking lip tacos. And if those weren't the best tacos of my life, <laughs> yeah. I mean, fuck me, was that good? And it costs uh, $2 for one of those tacos and we ate you know chorizo tacos and whatever tacos they had but the lip taco compared to the couple hundreds we just dropped at some code cuisine wannabe spot had none of the soul none of the passion none of the integrity none of the intention and none of frankly the value proposition that i was looking for and we see that in the springs i think i mean that's kind of that opening premise of like it's that the expectation, Jared and I talked about expectations. Shane, you talked about, you know, the the, the idea of an idea, the, the failure to deliver a, on promise. I mean, if you're going in to spend that much money, it better be really good. And then when it's not, we're just so deeply disappointed. And again, I'm not trying to paint, you know, the springs at large as commits that crime. It's just it's committed way too often in too many places. I mean, we've all – I mean, right now, if I could get some broad sandwich for that – that price, I would I'd happily pay. That's normal now. We're getting really mediocre, bad hamburgers off food trucks for $15. And you're like, why is this $15? Mm-hmm. There's no excuse. If you were using local grass-fed beef, which they're not, I would be, again, happy to pay some more to honor that. But you're using the same you know, mass market junk and, and expecting us to pay that. And, and it's just because it's like, oh, we, we all saw the movie Chef and it was cute. So I'm going to, you know, go eat at food trucks. But like that, that's, that's not acceptable. Like there still needs to be the value proposition at every turn and a fair price for good food or price it at what it's really worth. But, you know, we're undermining those who actually do spend the extra money on good ingredients and, and good sourcing. Their margins are even lower, tighter. It's harder to, to do. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, if, if James at the warehouse, you know, puts bison on his menu or something like that, and, and you know the price points more than the cheap box beef that comes out from name the producer, I don't think the average, back to the education point Jerry was making, I don't think the average consumer always thinks about that and knows about that and understands why these prices are what they are because they, they're getting a mixed message. People are pricing things inaccurately, being greedy or whatever. You know, Jared was saying like right now to, to do the two people tasting menu at Alinea, it's like, oh, you know, depending two, 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 on the night, 260, 270, it's, it's a great deal. You're like, you're trying to sell me on a great deal. Like, <laughs> holy shit, that's a lot of money. But he's probably not wrong. That's a great price for the experience he's delivering in that setting. Well, and I, I also think that I agree with you 100 percent that the 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 idea of of perception of value is is massively important. I mean, Forbes in their ratings has a whole category called perception of luxury, perception of value, right? Like, there it's a big deal when you talk about restaurants and resorts and, and hospitality and broad strokes, right? But I think there's a lot of ways that you can add to perception of value that don't necessarily cost a lot of money that Colorado Springs could really improve on. You know, those are the the little details, the little mechanics and service, whether it's an atmosphere thing. I mean, one of the things that we talk about a lot is um, kind of getting people caught under this magic spell, right? We want we want things to happen for guests that they don't even know are happening for them until they think about it and it's already done and they're like, oh, holy shit, that's amazing. You know, we want from the time that you walk in the door and say your last name, we don't want you to ever put any effort or any thought into it the rest of the time. Everything just, even the thing that you think, I want this, it happens for you without even having to ask for it, right? We want it to be magical for you. 
And that adds this huge element of value, right? We want you, by the time that you leave your table and walk to the front door, we want the front door person to be standing there with your coat already in hand and you to walk around the corner and be like, how do you know I was coming to the front door? Like, I just knew. How do you remember that was my coat? I just remembered. And then like walk around the corner and be like, oh, online I purchased a cookbook. And then the host is like, oh, yeah, I know that. I already have it boxed up and bagged up for you. Here you go. You know, everything's just so like we try to capture you in that magical moment. And so many different things can shock you out of that magical moment. And shock you out of that trance, right? A spoon dropping on the ground, a glass breaking, a, a saute pan hitting the stove too loud. Like all of those things will grab you from this almost trance that you're in and shake you out of it and then remind you, oh shit, yeah, I'm having dinner. And then it almost reminds you again, oh shit, yeah, I'm spending 80 bucks for two people right now. You know, like yeah. there are so many little things that you can do to add to that element of luxury, to add to that perception of value. And I'm not saying that it solves all the problems, right? Like 80 bucks for dinner for two people is a lot of money for sure. But I think that there there's opportunities, plentiful opportunities for restaurants and service people in Colorado Springs to add to that perception of value so that guests themselves maybe be a little bit more comfortable or maybe don't feel the hurt of that bill as much at the end. Right. Yeah. Shane. We're building fantasy. You know, I spent a lot of my career also in entertainment and then storytelling and sort of bounce back between both food and, and entertainment in that world. And I'm reminded how similar restaurants and eat, going out and eating is to, to, to watching a movie. I mean, it's totally. escapism yeah. because if you want to eat gruel and drink grain alcohol, you will get full and drunk sure. and that will cost you five bucks and you're good. You're done. If, like, if our intention was just to get drunk and have full stomachs, we can do that for pretty cheap. So any restaurant or any eatery, any food truck, any taco stand that opens, is open for business. They're selling escapism mm -hmm. in addition to calories. And so it's, it is an equation of how much of that escapism is demanded for the price point in addition to the calories and the alcohol that you're getting. So at Alinea, you know, you might have a course, I'm just pulling it out, a strawberry course. Well, and those are going to be really well-sourced strawberries. They're going to be fucking delicious strawberries. And they're going to be, um, they're going to be transformed in, into something even more amazing through the techniques of your chefs and then told by storytelling at the table through your server. So that still only gets you so far based upon the price point. That's why you need the gentleman at Coach Jack and the door and, and, and this layer of fantasy stacked into it because there are plenty of tasting menu restaurants that might have a similar dish at a counter in Brooklyn, which is, you know, a little bit more rough and rugged and, totally. you know, you don't have as much pomp and circumstance. That's not, and, and so they don't charge that. They can't because they don't have the opportunities to engage, to, to have someone really Wonka lick something off the wall, you know, when they're walking through the hallway at Alinea I love doing or, that. you know, the thing that doesn't look edible your is actually your course, yeah. you know, <laughs> like that's wizardry, that's magic. That's, that's, that's fantasy, um, which when you pay that price point, you have to have because the food is just not enough. Totally. But, but I think that even a place like Smorbrog can still do those things, right? It's, yes. it's like replacing a linen if it falls on the ground. That doesn't have to be a fine dining thing, right? Like that can be a local cafe thing, you know, and sure. it, making sure that anytime my water is empty, it's refilled instantly. You know, like those little things, I think those are things that people who work in this industry, especially people who work in this industry as a temporary thing, as a stopgap job, 
don't necessarily put a huge amount of value in. They're like, oh yeah, that person's out of water, but I'll, you know, I'm, I'm making these drinks. I've got these other things to do. That's a low priority thing. Water is a huge priority. Water is very important, right? Because it's the minimal, the, the most basic thing that I can do for you if you come to my restaurant is give you water, right? <laughs> like, yeah. It starts with ingredients. Why is Alinea's strawberry so good? Because they know the farmer because they know where it's coming from, because it's picked at its optimum, because of all the reasons why that strawberry could be good, they make sure to the best of their ability, that strawberry is fucking delicious as a strawberry. When you are sourcing from Cisco, US Foods, Shamrock, and you're buying their baseline commodity foods, the ceiling is already set. You can only Mm. go so high. Mm -hmm. And that is, if I were to say anything to anyone in any restaurant business is you need to work really hard to avoid using those foods um, and find uh, ingredients, whether they're imported from somewhere else or you're getting them locally that surpass the quality of this sort of mediocre standard we have around, I call them like ground apples. And everyone knows a tomato that's a ground apple. It looks red on the outside, but boy, it crunches like a granny smith. And that's what we're going to address in our, I believe it's going to be our fifth episode. We're going to talk to the producers, the the people who make good food. We're going to talk about good ingredients. So thank you, Shane, for bringing that up because that is something I want to, I do want to focus on later is sort of the, where we go from here and how we could do it better. Anything we, we haven't touched on that is a, another thing to evaluate the spring scene, what it needs. Again, credit given to places like Jared and I talked about, you know, we have a really good craft coffee scene. I think it's, it's there, it's tight, we're good. We have a good craft cocktail scene, but to Shane's point, something he said to me, well, yeah, but a good cocktail does not a food scene make. That's, that's one component of it, much like one component of your linear experience, but any other closing thoughts on like, what what do we need guys? I, I, as far as what we need before we get to what we need, I, I totally agree with you that like Colorado Springs has great coffee. Colorado Springs has really good cocktails and Colorado Springs has great breweries and distilleries. It's so like one of the many things that makes this place so weird is that I feel like if you look at the culinary landscape and timeline of a lot of other cities, it's food that charges the way first and then Mm. beverage follows after. Right. I don't know why, and this isn't discounting the amazing work of great chefs like Jay Gust and the others that you listed before, because incredible restaurants have existed in Colorado Springs for sure. But culturally speaking, I don't know why Colorado Springs grabbed onto coffee and cocktails and beer and distillates before they grabbed onto food. It feels like, especially on this like national standard level, Colorado Springs became obsessed with beverage before they've become obsessed with food, right? And I, I don't know why it was opposite here. It's so it's so weird. It's so strange. And it's like I'm almost still waiting for the city to become obsessed with food because people are willing to be beer snobs here. People are willing to be cocktail snobs here, right? But for whatever reason, people aren't yet willing to be food snobs, and I don't I don't know why. Not to encourage snobbery at all, but. The thing that Colorado Springs, what I would like to see is more reverence mm-hmm. around eating and experiencing memorable meals where you're from the diet, from the consumer side, where you're not doing how the equation of how much massive meatball math, you know, can I get for X amount of dollars? But you said, how, how will I leave this place feeling holistically? You know, what am I looking to, to gain from it? And likewise, from the chef perspective, I know there's a lot of kind of younger guys and girls really coming up. My only thought is to be restrained and to be simple and to look at the quality of ingredient first and the technique first before you inject your opinions or your ideas and start really at the basics because there's a reason why 
the food that was for kings and dignitaries lasted pretty much unchanged for a hundred plus years. So if you're going to start, start at the roots and the, and the base and learn and admire those techniques and use them. There's nothing wrong with a great poached chicken breast with hollandaise or bearnaise. And you can source all those ingredients relatively locally. And if you cook the chicken breast beautifully and you have a beautiful sauce and it might have some garnish of some greens that were from local or the mushrooms that are local, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. You don't need to recreate the wheel. No. No, you can serve those Escoffier-like dishes and do them perfectly, and and they're still today phenomenal for sure. I think you can you can, you can mess them up and still be delicious. Sure, sure. <laughs> <laughs> how many people who serve a burger in Colorado Springs, or how many restaurants or outlets bake a bun in house? Mm. I don't know of any under what we could count on our fingers. <laughs> okay, <laughs> under. that gentleman and listener, dear listener and dear gentleman. That says exactly all we need to say. Good point. Unless you're buying If you're going to have a burger, make the bun. Or if you were buying from one of our finest local bakeries and supporting them, and they were making a very quality bun that's not available off the big truck, then I would would prefer that. I would reward that over the the big truck bun. But you have a good point. Um, So little is being made. But again, the realities of labor cost and and supply chain stuff and, and... you know, the, what the industry is going through right now, it's probably one of the hardest times ever to, to staff that extra person to make the bun on top of all the other things that have to be done to keep the lights on. So, but again, I mean, we can make excuses all day, but it, it, some, sure. some people are doing it and doing it well. So it, it, it happens. It exists. We can, yeah. we can find models. Wait, can we just say that I'd like to blame all the lazy millennials uh, for our problems that we face <laughs> yes. right now? No, no, yes. no. Hear me out. Hear me out. <laughs> so, as a millennial, I can tell you we're lazy, we're indignant, we're entitled, and uh, we don't want to work hard anymore. And that's why there's a labor shortage because Uncle Sam gave you $600 uh, in May of last year. So, Jared, I'm looking at you, millennial. Hey, you're lazy. I, <laughs> listen, I, I know. I'm a piece of shit. I get it. I know. You don't have to talk. <laughs> 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 that's 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 what it is. If we just just stop being so lazy, maybe maybe we'd all go back to work for unlivable wages. It's true. So uh, the answer to what Color Springs needs to advance its food scene is for lazy millennials to get off their asses and contribute. <laughs> and maybe just maybe we'll become a big city one day with with food scene right. that matches the the grandeur of these new tall buildings mm-hmm. that we're all staring up at downtown. Yeah. That none of us can afford to live in. Or not, yes, exactly. Right. But right. they might pay us. They might pay us twelve dollars an hour to go sling some fries out of there. Yes. They might. Spoken Maybe. like a true past dishwasher. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and, and over ten years of frying those fries, then I'll finally be able to afford my van that I can live in. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could lease it. You could lease. I can lease the van. Yeah. <laughs> On the next episode. Colorado Springs food scene has a very it's good enough for us culture. It's not good enough. It was hard to get people to embrace what we were doing because we were doing stuff that was not commonplace for this town. What used to be excellence or nothing is now, well, we have to settle for that because it's either that or nothing now. Thank you again to our inaugural episode's guests, Shane Lyons and Jared Boyer. Thanks also to State of Plate's underwriters, the Colorado Springs Community Cultural Collective, Downtown Colorado Springs, and the Fountain Creek Brew Shed Alliance. Please tell your friends about this podcast. We'd love your feedback 
especially if you have a different perspective on anything we've said. You can comment on my social media pages, as well as the CS Indies. Find links in our show notes, or search us by name. State of Plate was written and co-produced by me, Matthew Schnipper, in partnership with the Colorado Springs Indie, and Dave Gardner, who also did our editing. Art design by Elena Trapp. Digital support by Sean Cassidy. Cheers to Hug Speaks Lauren Hug, as well as Shane Lyons for consulting on the show. And special thanks to publisher and executive editor of the Colorado Springs Indie, Amy Gillentine, for greenlighting this podcast.